You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words, What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today is a special live recording. You may hear the ocean in the background because I'm here at the XPRIZE event, which Bulletproof is sponsoring. And I got a chance to interview Dr. Bob Hariri, who is an amazing human being, a personal friend, and someone who just got off stage. He's got 30 years as a neurosurgeon and a medical entrepreneur who's done a huge number of startups innovating at the very forefront of how we can get control of our own biology, both medical stuff and now some things that are quasi-medical that are tied to anti-aging, longevity, and stem cells, particularly a company called Cellularity, which is pioneering some of the new ways we can live a lot longer than we thought we could. Bob, welcome to the show. Dave, it is, as always, great to see you, and thanks for inviting me. Bob, on stage here with Peter Diamandis, you just talked about some incredible things that you think we're going to be able to do over the next even 10 years to radically extend what we'll call the human health span. And you said something that really caught my attention. You said 100 is the new 60. What does that mean? You know, Dave, we have been um, working for, for more than the better part of two decades on turning living cells into medicines. And on that journey, we recognize that the way a stem cell exerts its biological power uh, when used as a therapeutic is to, in essence, reprogram a system. And that's really useful when we're trying to go after cancer by, by using immune cells that can specifically target, identify, and destroy a cancer cell. It's useful when we use these cells to modulate the immune system, to turn off inflammation, or to turn off autoimmunity. Um, but it's also really valuable if you want to change an aging phenotype, an aging form into a more youthful form. And so I became curious about this maybe a decade ago and started to study some simple relationships, the number of stem cells in your body as a function of age, and whether the stem cells in your body decline qualitatively as well as quantitatively with age. And lo and behold, that's what we've actually shown. So the obvious next experiment to do was if you're losing stem cells as you age, and that's one of the reasons why you develop the symptoms of aging, why not give yourself stem cells back and see what happens? And some of the early work was really compelling. Um, we showed that in, in experimental animals, uh, the number of stem cells in every organ and tissue decline with age. And if you replace them, you can actually extend the lifespan of those animals. So where this is taking us in the future is where we want to develop a toolkit that would allow us to safely, reliably, and repeatedly boost 
the regenerative reservoir that resides in our body by getting a dose of cells that um, that literally restore this youthful phenotype. Four years ago, I had my first stem cell treatment where uh, Dr. Harry Adelson pulled some fat out of my uh, my own sort of lower back area, made some stem cells from it, or more likely extracted them, and then injected them intravenously into some sites of injuries I had, and they all went away. All the areas of pain stopped. And since then, I've done a ton of stuff, and I haven't tried uh, the things that you're making yet, which I'm excited to do. Uh, maybe two weeks ago, I had a half a liter of bone marrow pulled out through both hips, and we used that in every joint in my body and things like that. But this stuff is relatively expensive. And one of the concerns that I have is that right now, this is cheaper than joint replacement, and it might prevent it. So it's actually, if insurance would cover it, it's actually a better use of funds, and you don't have to have replacement parts, maybe, which is a good thing. But when is the stem cell universe going to be open to all of us versus just the people who can afford it now? So first off, Dave, I've known you a long time and you're as tough as nails if you had a half a liter of bone marrow collected, because I know that's not fun. We blended it with coffee and I drink it right down. <laughs> um, another great product line. <laughs> so so, so you're, you're hitting on some very important points. First and foremost, the answer isn't going to be harvesting your own cells yeah. via a surgical extraction. The answer in this field is going to be who can productize an allogeneic off-the-shelf cell that can be produced to the high standards of a pharmaceutical and is one size fits all. That's actually where we are at Cellularity. So Cellularity is the company that pioneered the use of the leftovers from a full-term healthy pregnancy mm -hmm. and isolating the cells from that organ to do all of this. Here's the cool thing, Dave, and you'll appreciate this. The challenge early on in cellular medicine is could you find a cell that could be delivered to a recipient without having to go through the exhaustive effort of matching the donor to the recipient yeah. the way we do for organs. But here's the thing. Nature did the work for us already. The placenta is nature's professional allograft, which means it's designed to exist in an unrelated recipient without the need to match. Think about this, right? A mother contributes 50% of the DNA to the fetus she carries. Yet for nine months, she doesn't reject it, it doesn't reject her, right? Yep. Think about surrogate pregnancy. The mother's not even related to the fetus. She contributes no DNA. She's completely unmatched to the tissue type of the fetus, yet she carries it for nine months, doesn't reject it, it doesn't reject her. The underlying biology behind this is one of the most powerful tools we are incorporating in our entire therapeutic strategy. So stem cells from the placenta are naturally allogeneic, and it means you don't have to harvest your own cells, which by the way, uh, this isn't any kind of a knock on you because you're one of the healthiest guys I know, but as we age, we damage our own stem cells in our, in our, in our fat tissue, in our bone marrow, et cetera. The stem cells that come from a newborn are pristine. They are in the best biological state they will ever be. So stem cells from a placenta will always have qualitative advantages over cells recovered at some point in your life. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm 45 and I used to weigh 300 pounds and I had all sorts of autoimmune conditions. And I used to say I've had some hard living, especially in the first half of my life. And I'm sure that that's reflected in my stem cells, probably even in the number of DNA mutations I have and things like that. Uh, so I'd rather get fresh stem cells. And frankly, having I've had my bone marrow tapped now a couple times and having uh, the kind of liposuction, which isn't cosmetic, but where they just pull fat out. It's about a coffee cup's worth of fat. It's not a really fun procedure, right. uh, to be honest. And what I got from that was definitely matched stem cells, but I got 45-year-old stem cells and I would have rather had zero-year-old stem cells. That's right. And since you know you and I didn't have the benefit of storing our stem cells from birth, today our kids and kids have an opportunity to do that, and that's going to be very, very important going forward. But the beauty of placental cells is that we can administer them to unmatched recipients safely and effectively, and not only do they, do they uh, uh, create a state of tolerance in the recipient— but they're because they're younger and because they have biological properties of young cells, there are significant advantages. 
why do we have to go out and get placental cells from fresh placentas when we can grow a cell line in a lab? So you could just get one placenta and grow it and make hundreds of millions of doses from that, right? So the beauty of the placenta is it is a robust source, economical, highly scalable. It can be subjected to very rigorous uh, criteria for inclusion and exclusion. But the reason the reason that we don't want to take just one source and and overexpand it is the same reason why cells at forty five might not be qualitatively as good as they are early in life. There is a natural, ex, for lack of a better word, exhaustion of the biological potential of cells as we continually call upon them to divide and expand. We've shown this in the laboratory. In fact, it's a basis upon which our manufacturing methodologies uh, have been created. In order to preserve the highest quality of the cell, we limit the number of times we drive that cell to divide. Okay, so the idea is stem cells that have been replicated over and over and over may basically age in a petri dish exactly. or a bioreactor. That's a great way of that's a great way of looking at it. Now, are there any ethical concerns? There's been going back to the very early days with stem cells, people thought they came from abortions and, and things like that. And I know that these don't. Can you walk me through the ethical and moral considerations that you went through with cellularity to figure out, you know, how do we how do we get these placental cells? Absolutely. And in fact, that's that's one of the fundamental questions I asked myself back when I began the company. At a time when most of the work was being done around stem cells recovered from discarded embryos or uh, abortus material, there was an enormous debate. There was an underlying uh, tone of controversy, which put a, put a tremendous uh, uh, risk on, on the entire field. Now, at that time... Um, and, and I don't want to get into the my personal religious or 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 my personal morality, but I, I felt it was fundamentally flawed to rely upon discarded embryos and fetal material because you could always create a very perverted incentive yeah. to go after that. But staring me in the face, and I have to thank my oldest daughter. My oldest daughter, is, who's uh, 27 now, um, she's a Princeton graduate, has spent time at Oxford and Georgetown, and now is getting her MBA at Wharton. When she was in utero, she taught me that the placenta was basically nature's stem cell factory. And since we throw that factory away at the end of every birth, why not just go harvest these? So number one, it's, it's abundantly available. To use our buddy Peter's great terminology, abundance is important here. That's number one. Number two, and this is really critically important, the, the, the fundamental um, choice for a parent to donate this material for these purposes is left completely up to them. So we collect these placentas to isolate cells and biological materials under full informed consent giving the family the option to choose whether or not to do this based upon their own personal altruistic interests. Now, now there's, there's an opportunity in the future to be able to reward donors of this material by providing them access to some of the materials for their own purposes. But mo I will tell you, in 20-some-odd years of doing this, it is, it is a rarity that a family says, no, 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 I would rather you incinerate the placenta, then use it for something meaningful. There's a fundamental altruism that exists in the, in the period around the birth of a healthy child that we have just, uh, the, the world is a beneficiary of. So you could basically help someone who has Alzheimer's or some sort of traumatic injury or something, or you could just throw it away. And that does make sense. Are, are you concerned that maybe cells have consciousness or anything like that. I mean, I, I've heard some people who just on social media and whatnot on Instagram will ask questions like that. You know, are you worried you're putting some other cells in your body? What's your just overall thinking about this isn't your cells? Are they going to stick around and be a part of you? You know what? That's an interesting question. Look, um, every living cell contains um, its own biological software written into its DNA. Right. And so the DNA from a donor placental cell is different than your DNA, okay? And when that, and when that cell takes up residence in you temporarily or permanently, that, that new code, that new biological software 
has to coexist with your biological software. Now, people don't realize that, but that's a fundamental biological principle. Okay, I will argue to you today that chimerism, the ability of of, a, of another genome to coexist in a in a different organism is is one of the fundamental biological principles of mammalian biology. Okay, think about this, right? Any uh, uh, placental mammal uh, that produces more than one offspring actually exchanges cells between uh, offspring between one another, and they t- and this microscopic chimerism, this multiple multiple genomes in the same organism, is not only tolerated, but it probably provides certain benefits. So let's yeah. think about this, right? In the, in the, and you know, you know this world very well. In agriculture, chimerism, right? Putting, grafting together tree branches in order to create higher virulence and uh, high, higher virility and higher um, disease resistance is a common practice. Chimerism has a therapeutic advantage. And I've actually had a principle called chimeric vigor, which we are actually working to develop. Think about it this way. You know what hybrid vigor is? Yep. Hybrid vigor, when you have two distinct parental genomes that come together to create offspring, those genes recombine and select in order to provide advantages to the offspring, right? It means your offspring should be better than you, healthier, et cetera, et cetera. That hybrid vigor uh, occurs between generations, but if I take stem cells that have a genome that have certain biological properties that are advantageous and put them in you, those traits will get upregulated and expressed if it provides you a survival advantage. Chimeric vigor can occur within a generation. So I want stem cells from Wolverine. Exactly. <laughs> hey, listen, listen, buddy. You know, the truth of the matter is we are embarking on an era where we can quality check stem cells, we can understand the underlying biological software and select traits that when conferred to a recipient, improve the health of that recipient. That's work that we're working on today. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, there's going to come a point where you can maximize your health by, by expressing those biological traits that give you certain selective advantages against disease. It may sound weird, this idea that you can have other DNA inside you, but there are studies, a lot of people don't know about them, that show that uh, every time a woman has sex with a man, she gets a little bit of DNA from the semen that permanently resides in her system. Either permanently or transit. And by the way, multi-parous women, women who have multiple children, will carry cells from every child in their body for their lifetime. So, that, so, so pregnancy and carrying children creates what's called multiple mixed microscopic chimerism, and it is very tolerated. There are also mitochondria, which is a big focus for for my work on my last book, Headstrong, uh, where you look at this different DNA source, which is the mitochondrial DNA that programs the power source in your cells. When you get stem cells from a donor, are you going to get those mitochondria? Will they Will they take up residence in your system? Will they talk to your mitochondria? Will they change your mitochondrial genome in addition to giving you new cells? So the, the mitochondria resident in the cells administered to you remain resident to those cells. Okay. And so you do get the advantage of mitochondrial chimerism as well. And if that provides certain biological advantages, that will naturally get upregulated and expressed. There are questions around whether stem cells that get administered intravenously or injected somewhere, whether those cells go in, secrete healing factors, and then die, or whether they actually become new tissues for you. What has your research shown you? So, good question. Most of the work today suggests that stem cells exert their biological properties by transiently affecting the the secretome of the individual, contributing synthetic products to the, uh, uh, synthesized products to the individual, and then, and then moving on, dying off and, and not being a permanent resident. Now, the truth of the matter is we don't have tools today that allow us to measure microscopically yeah. single cell or small cell clusters in the body. It's very, very tough to do that. So I bet that, that even, even in, in, 
in what we think is transient cell therapy, there's some residual cellular material. But it's not necessary to exert the biological effects. And one of the beauties of a placental cell therapy strategy is these products can be re-administered. I actually envision that our form of cell therapy will be delivered in a linear fashion, serially, to continually get the biologic response you want. How often do you get stem cells? <laughs> so you know what? We're working uh, right now on developing a strategy to deploy these in a network of research clinics um, that will be abroad as well in the, as in the United States. Um, I've been working with some uh, factors from stem cells, which I've administered to myself, placental exosomes, for example. And you know, I'm excited about being one of the recipients of placental cells in our in our research network. How often? You know what? I actually believe that that for the kinds of applications I'm interested in, uh, extending the healthy human lifespan, mm -hmm. you can administer these things safely on a an annual basis or or semi annual basis. I, I do it every six months. That's yeah. I think you know that actually to me um, everything we've seen. That goes along with the the pharmacokinetics, if you will, of cell therapy. So I think you're making the right choice. The last big treatment that I did, which was probably one of the biggest single treatments all at one time, uh, I had very large numbers of cells and I had 10 vials of placental exosomes uh, all at the same time, which is, as you know, yeah. a, a very high dose. Big dose, yeah. And that was only a couple of weeks ago, but I'm already feeling pretty good. I was a little out of it for a day or two, as you'd expect afterwards. Um, I'm looking at at how do we make this so you know all 300 something million people in the US can get access to it? How rapidly, well, what does it cost now to do a baseline cellularity treatment and how far down do you see it going in two years, five years, 10 years? Is this a cell phone situation where they're 20 grand now and they're a dollar 20 years from now? Absolutely, there's no doubt that, that this, is a, this is a technology that will be introduced at costs that will um, be most approachable by people with high amounts of discretionary income, right? Then it's going to wind up trickling down. Like any breakthrough technology, the um, uh, there's a segment of the population that subsidizes the, the the democratization of the products, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. People shouldn't think that this is a technology that's exclusive or elitist or whatnot. That's not the objective here. Um, the truth is that because of our uh, what we've built at Cellularity, these are going to be very affordable therapeutics. Um, what we need is we need to operate within the confines of the regulatory community so we can get an unimpeachable data set showing intrinsic safety. And then once you have that, the, the clinical and regulatory and scientific world becomes more comfortable with using these products in conventional applications, you know, sort of the, the common applications dealing with age-related frailty, human performance, injury repair, et cetera. Uh, look, I envision a time in the next 10 to 15 years where cell therapy is is no more expensive than any traditional way we deal with inflammatory disease or cancer and, um, and will be far more effective and far safer. I absolutely love that answer. And there's a lot of skepticism from people saying, you know, this, this is for rich people. Here's the deal. You go back, Craig Venter, a guy that we both know, uh, he spent $100 million sequencing his own genome, and I've had my entire genome sequenced four years ago for 1500 bucks, and it's, what, around $300 to sequence your full genome now? This is in our lifetime, just in 20 years, so it's not that far-fetched to say, look, someone had to be the guinea pig, and I'm happy to raise my hand. That's what I do, uh, and to say that, that, this, that the mission of doing this is to make it so that it affects all human beings and that there's no reason that anyone would want to keep this here. Because frankly, I'd rather spend $100 instead of $1,000 on keeping myself young, right? So would everyone. And I'd rather be able to do it for my parents and my fifth cousins I've never met. Exactly. <laughs> as well as all, everyone listening to the show. So you see that as inevitable, right? I do. And I, and I think it's, it's, it is a fundamental driver of every business in the space. Look, I'm very fortunate. Um, one of my members of my board of directors, one of my vice chairman, in fact, uh, is John Scully, the former CEO of Apple, okay? And we talk about this. You know, John, John is one of the most brilliant creative leaders I've ever known, and he's been a tremendous mentor. And, and he's, he's, he's helped me understand 
that a noble cause, as he puts it, right, a noble cause, like what would they what they did at Apple, mm-hmm. okay, the cost of introducing that first breakthrough that first breakthrough technology was enormous, and the risks were completely borne by the developers and the companies who did it. But look what happened, right? It transformed the world by putting communications and intelligence systems in the hands of everybody. And the natural the natural course of events is that the overall cost per capita drops and drops and drops and drops and drops, right? Everybody's got an iPhone, right? It's not, this is not inaccessible. We want to do the exact same thing with cellular therapy. What are the things that are making it stay expensive longer than it should? Again, uh, the process of going through regulatory approval, it's, it's drug development, right? The cost of drug development, because of the enormous burden of proof and evidence necessary to get the legal right to sell a product, is what keeps these things expensive and takes time to get them out there. Where, where I think we want to have an impact is we want to work with regulatory leaders and clinical leaders so that there's a greater comfort level with the intrinsic safety of this therapeutic approach. Cell therapy is very different than biologics and small molecules because we know they have a very high safety profile. And, and regardless of what people may think, because there's been some sensationalized report of somebody who went to a, a renegade clinic, you know, a fringe clinic out there and got treated with stem cells and something bad happened. The truth of the matter is cellular therapy clinics are all over the place and you don't see disasters reported on a regular basis because cell therapy is intrinsically safe. But it's our responsibility as players developing this to get the proof in the form of hard, hard, high integrity data so that our colleagues on the regulatory side, our colleagues of the academic institutions, our scientific colleagues believe it, have confidence in it, and, and eventually become advocates for this. I was a strategic advisor to the first clinical grade stick-on take-home heart monitoring uh, back in the early 2000s and designed a lot of the, the data processing for it. And that company had to uh, leave the U.S. in order to do its clinical trials. They went to MedCity in India. They went to Singapore. And they were able to do things to prove that it worked at a much lower cost before they could do it in the U.S. And I'm seeing issues of national competitiveness where it's just so expensive and so slow to do things in the U.S. that a lot of the most innovative things are happening in China. They're happening in in Thailand. They're happening in India. And medical tourism is to the point where it's cheaper to go do things south of the border, for instance. Do you see this as a as a regulatory issue, as a political issue, as just what's the U.S. going to look like 20 years from now if we keep restricting this? So it's all of the above. All right, look, you know what? Um, Without getting into a political discussion. I don't want to go there, yeah. We don't want to go there. But in an environment where you understand that regulations, initially the the thought process behind a a regulated environment is to ensure safety, right? And to ensure, uh, and to protect consumers. When those systems turn into an, a major impediment to progress, the, the, the public loses. So, you know, we're already seeing the, 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 I think the potential long-term benefits of a deregulation philosophy that is, it's encouraging companies to invest in R&D. I think in the last 18 months, the reinvestment of R, into R&D by companies that have been unburdened by regulations, I mean, it's profound right? The same thing will impact healthcare and medicine. I mean, look, when the mindset at an agency is safety above all else, people are going to die waiting for products to get approved, right? Yeah. So when, when, when you think about it, if, if someone is comfortable allowing a line of people to die because a therapeutic is not approved because they're so concerned that if it was approved, one patient might die on the therapy. That to me is a little counterintuitive. There's a word for that. It's called evil. (laughs) Listen, I don't disagree with you, but here's the point. 
the regulatory world could say, you know what, we understand what our what the mandate is here. So so let's establish a fundamental threshold for a demonstration of adequate safety. Okay. And then let's put the let's put the tools back in the hands of the practicing physicians. Who, by the way, okay, I think it's a little offensive that in some cases, panels and committees of lawyers and policymakers are are dictating what a highly trained physician or surgeon can actually do. Why not put that back into their hands, but insist that they elevate the integrity and the and the the comprehensive nature of the data they collect in every patient. Let me give you an example, okay? Um, the standard for getting a drug approved is a well-controlled, placebo-controlled, blinded, double-blinded study, mm-hmm. right? And you need a few of those to get drugs approved. When you do that in the conventional system today, it ain't a replicate of the real-world experience with those products. When you put the products into the hands of, of physicians in real-world practice, but just make insist that the data be collected at high integrity and high fidelity so you can actually, on a regular basis, continually update what we know, you could envision a, you can envision a day where literally every label for every therapeutic product changes dynamically on the basis of ever-increasing human experience. That's a system I think would be perfect. And it would give everyone comfort in getting products available to patients earlier. The Hippocratic Oath says, first, do no harm. Is it time to upgrade the Hippocratic Oath to say, first, balance risk and reward? You know, I think the best docs out there do that, Dave. They do. I think that they say, you know what? Um, There is no free lunch here. Uh, Everything, everything has predictable and unforeseen risk. As long as you're capable of, of monitoring the, the effects of everything we do in the treatment of disease, and as long as that information is made readily available and disseminated quickly, we, we minimize the long-term distributed effect of a bad outcome, and we maximize the tools that we can use to treat patients. What you're saying, in essence, is that every patient could be part of a broad experiment if we get the data, so that we learn over time. That's what that's what healthcare used to be. Remember, you go back 50 years, okay? How did a doctor make decisions about treating a patient based upon his experience using a treatment modality, and and he based upon. 10 patients, 20 patients, 100 patients experience made decisions about treating the next patient, right? Right. Okay, we don't do that anymore. What happens is we have pigeonholed physicians into treating patients on the prescribed methodology that's in a package insert. From the 1970s. From it, well, The philosophy was from the 70s and it still carries forward. But think about this for a second, right? You think doctors ever read that? You know who reads? You, you, have you ever seen a package insert for a pharmaceutical? It's yeah. it's, in, it's 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 enormous. You think doctors ever read that? Never. You know who reads it word by word? Lawyers. Lawyers. It is used for evidentiary purposes in litigation. That's what drives me crazy. Okay, doctors need to be able to doctor, and and we 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 disarm them when we limit what they do on the basis of uh, regulatory systems that don't don't take full advantage of the ongoing dynamic experience of a product in a patient. How would someone listening to the show go about finding one of those courageous doctors willing to, in essence, risk their medical license to do the right thing for a patient? Is there a selection criteria that you would go through to find someone like that? It's very hard to do it because you know what? Those are the guys who who in order to stay within the confines of the regulatory environment and the law and so on and so forth, they practiced medicine the way, pra- the way medicine is designed to be practiced today. But you'll find guys who, who are willing uh, clinical investigators who go and work with the newest breakthrough therapies, and those are the guys who are trying to push the envelope. Health, listen, I think healthcare in, in, in our country is broken. Um, I think that there's ways to improve it. Uh, one of the great ways to improve it is is to properly utilize the information 
management tools and computational tools so that literally every patient on a therapy is contributing to a data set that is analyzed dynamically and 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 feeds back into the overall the underlying prescribing information uh, so that so that literally um, every patient is a like you say a participant in a grand experiment as a patient I think it's equally offensive that uh, at least in the U S I'm not allowed to decide what therapy I want with or without a partnership with a physician where my body, my biology, my decision, it wasn't encoded in the bill of rights, but it seems like that's a basic human right. Is our own biological autonomy, a basic human right in your opinion? You know, that's a great and, and, and sort of um, provocative question, right? Look, um, I'm kind of a libertarian by nature and, and the way I look at it, we, we live at a time where any patient, any patient's family has access to more information than I ever had access to when I was in the clinics 30 years ago. And people need to have an opportunity and a right to, to at least contribute to the decision-making yeah. about how their disease is managed. Look, at the end of the day, um, the best patient is the most well-informed patient. Um, we we sometimes we sometimes uh, don't give people the opportunity to make those decisions. But look, you know there are changes at hand. Uh, um, uh, the Right to Try Act, right? This uh, this uh, bill that the president recently helped advance. You know, I think that that's not a bad thing. Um, I have I have had very sad circumstances in my own family where where I know that there were highly experimental uh, uh, therapeutics out there that could have changed the natural history of a, of a disease. But for, for, for fear of getting in trouble, we never got to use those therapeutics. And, um, you know, there are patients out there who are sitting, waiting, and hoping that that breakthroughs get approved, but they have no control over that. I think that that access to experimental therapeutics under the right circumstances in the right environment, especially if it can contribute to the data set, is a good thing for everybody. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's sad right now that sometimes the knowledge of those isn't out there. But if you have terminal cancer, I know several people, and you probably do too, <laughs> yeah. who are having insane results in early human trials or in animal trials or heck in petri dishes right. but if you've got 6 months left to live right. and you should be absolutely allowed to say you know what i'm going to die anyway i yeah. think i think i'm going to try because we'll learn something as i maybe don't die or absolutely. i do die and the fact that that's not legal right now it, it fundamentally pisses me off it, you know it is it's um it's disappointing that our our global leadership seems to think that they're in a better position to dictate the 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 end of life care for patients um, and what they're actually losing is they're losing an opportunity to contribute important information that could change the course of how we treat diseases so I'm with you I mean look I believe I believe that um, uh, there's a whole whole array of disorders where there's lots of experimental things out there and we could actually, hasten the review process and potentially speed up the availability of these things if we let people be courageous participants in an ongoing research effort to advance the field. Uh, like you say, there are cancers out there that are being treated with immunotherapy and other things. Um, give people access to it as long as that data is made available for the world to review. When it comes to treating aging as a disease... Uh, and I, I don't necessarily see it as a disease, but it's it's a definitely something that we can change. It, it seems like there's this huge universe of opportunities, and I believe that stem cells and related stem cell growth factors and all that are a fundamental thing for it. But we're dealing with an environment where, since aging isn't officially a disease, you're not even allowed to treat it necessarily. How do you navigate that that path of saying, well, we're not really treating a sickness, we're just making you better when that isn't a medical claim. What's your thought process look like and how do you 
how do you speak about that both to regulators and to people? You know, Dave, it's a very, very tough place to play. Um, you know, many of us are fearful that our enthusiasm about moving the field um, will be interpreted or perceived as an attempt to circumvent the law, which it's which clearly it's not, right? I mean, as a, as a scientist, all I care about is getting to the truth as yeah. fast as possible. The reality is, uh, we. We have, we have an opportunity to partner with the scientific, clinical, and regulatory community to, to do things that don't, don't get in the way of, of people's choices. And, and I think that there's, there's going to come a time where some um, charismatic leader is going to say, uh, no harm, no foul, if someone with a terminal disease winds up being a participant in 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 the study of a breakthrough therapeutic, whether or not it impacts their disease, as long as the information can be utilized to make decisions going forward in the development of those products. And you know what? Here's the crazy thing, right? Yes, the general public, an FDA-approved drug is going to work, right? And the truth of the matter is that the vast majority of, of approved drugs actually don't work in the patients they're prescribed in. Look at cancer drugs, right? Yeah. You know, the, the the typical cancer drug works in less than a third, maybe a quarter of patients they actually get prescribed for. It doesn't mean that they're not approvable, right? What it means is that there is such biological diversity that in my mind, as long as you equip the clinical community with the broadest set of tools and allow them to make decisions on what works and doesn't work in a more dynamic basis rather than prescribed prescribed in a defensive way, right? Doctors prescribe, I mean, in cancer, doctors follow protocols because as long as you follow the protocol, you can't get blamed if there's a bad outcome, right? Yeah. So, so again, I argue that much of what we're doing in getting agents approved under prescribing information doesn't necessarily help the patients, but it does serve as a as a basis for uh, for the legal community to try and find culpability when an outcome that's not expected or unwanted occurs. Is I don't know if that's good for the public. It doesn't seem like it is. Uh, not not even a little bit. So I'm I'm excited for for the world that you're talking about there, where you know a leader comes forth and says, you know, we're we're going to allow experimentation. But you said that that and again, the connotation of the word experimentation always appears to be exploitive, right? Yeah. And the truth of the, we have to change self experimentation. Right? Yeah, we have to. You know, we, we the truth of the matter is is that is that um, you know people need an opportunity to to test what works for them, right? No two products work the same. In, you know, no product works the same in two different individuals, just like no medications. Even no food works the same in two individuals, right? <laughs> so, you know, listen, we're going to, I think we're getting to a point where um, we're, we're going to see a, 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 an, an increase in the receptivity to, to do these sorts of things. I just, I just hope it happens fast. It will, and the second step of that is that life itself right now is is a terminal condition. And that means once we open the door for people to self-experiment in partnership with technology and with physicians, at a, at a very soon point after that, you say, well, wait a minute, I know it's going to happen 100, or in my case, at least 180 years out. I think I'd like to affect that now. And then self-experimenting can just be built into our ability to, to be human beings. But but there's a, a a downside or a risk to this that I want to I want to pick your brain on. We've talked a little bit about cancer. Anytime you increase regenerative capacity and growth in tissues, which you want as you age, you also could be running the risk of increasing the risk of cancer. Are you concerned as we push the limits of aging or healthy aging, and as we cause cells to get younger, that it might change the risks of cancer? And if so, what do you do about it? That was a very central early concern about the use of stem cells in in, in medicine um, that hey uh, isn't a stem cell potentially an ignition source for cancer 
in in practice, that hasn't been the case. Okay, um, there has been an enormous number of recipients of some form of stem cell therapy, and there has not been. Uh, an association between those products and an increased risk of cancer. Uh, you know, the data the data is still being generated, but I believe that that healthy stem cells, stem cells from the right source, do not increase the risk of cancer. By the way, in some cases, stem cell therapy, because it helps support a healthy immune system, could in fact reduce the risk of cancer. I've had my blood taken out and had my natural killer cells cultured and had about 2 billion of them reintroduced all at once, uh, which is something that they do for cancer. I don't have cancer. I just want a really young immune system. And so there are some really cool things you can do if you're concerned about that. And I I look at the data you shared in your talk uh, here at the XPRIZE event and you said something like 58% of people past 90 get Alzheimer's or cognitive uh, decline or dementia. 58%. So if you have a 10% increase in cancer risk and a 58% reduction in Alzheimer's risk, I don't know. I'd sign up for that. Like, I, I think you're right. And I think also that if we actually, under, if we actually uncover that cell therapy um, speeds up the development of a malignancy... Um, that's the kind of information that forewarned would actually increase our vigilance. Yeah. And you know, you could you could have the trade-off of you benefit one disease, uh, change the the dynamic or risk for another, but now at least you know what to look for. Remember, yeah. cancer, when identified early, is curable, yeah. fundamentally curable, right? I mean, it stage zero cancer has one of the highest overall cure rates because you can excise in one way or another, the core of that malignancy and eradicate the problem. Um, but I mean, look, this is a this is a this is a big team effort that's required between all of the constituents here, from the patients to the basic scientists. Um, I just want to make certain that we don't we don't hamstring what might be one of the greatest therapeutic breakthroughs in history because of of irrational fear uh, and and underlying uh, political agendas, which, you know, confuse and confound the issue. Bob, how long are you going to live? Uh, you know what? Listen, I've got... Um, I got three kids who uh, uh, who are the the absolute uh, uh, reason for for getting up every day, and I hope that I'm around to see their children and maybe even their children's children. I think I think that with what we know today, someone like me could easily live to ninety to hundred. Okay, um, I think that if some of the tools we bring to bear today uh, get to the point where they're every day available. We could push that even beyond. But I do know that my kids are guaranteed to live to 100. And I believe that their kids have the potential to live to 120 to 150. And if our good friend Ray Kurzweil's right, and we reach that longevity escape velocity, uh, we may actually be able to maintain a form of life well, well beyond even 150. Uh, I think that it may happen faster than that. I mean, we're here with Peter Diamandis, the, the king of exponential technology and abundance and all that. And I look at my own experience with the internet. You know, I, I helped to design the, the first provision on demand thing, which is a, a precursor to what we do with Amazon cloud services and all that. And you look at what happened in the course of our lifetime. You've got 30 years of clinical practice and starting companies. You've seen how fast things are changing. And if we change 10 times faster over the next 30 years, don't you think you're thinking small? I'm, I'm being conservative uh, because, uh, you know, you're, you're, most, you're mostly held, held, uh, held accountable for the bad predictions rather than the good ones, right? Um, but look, you know, I'm, I'm highly optimistic. And like you say, you know what the great thing about this, this kind of an environment for us, Dave, is, you know, we've gotten to know each other and, and build friendships and, and, a, and a fraternity here uh, where we're, we're with the smartest, most creative, most innovative, most enthusiastic people on the planet. So in this environment, I agree with you. 
I think we can we can step out of our comfort zone and say, you know what, 150 is an easy achievable lifespan. Um, so I'm with you, my friend. Well, let's let's race, and I'm willing to die trying. It's totally Me okay. Me too. We'll do it together. We will. I have one more question for you. Someone comes to you tomorrow and says, Bob, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being. Tell me the three most important pieces of advice you have based on everything you know. What would you recommend? First and foremost, I am convinced that maintaining the largest healthy lean muscle mass is central to overall human performance, mobility, cognition, and aesthetics. So that's number one. And there's lots of ways you can do that outside of the therapeutic realm, okay? Um, we We need to do what nature intended, which is load our muscle and to permit our muscle to maintain its highest mass and health. The second the second thing is I want to avail myself of all of the breakthroughs in cellular medicine because I do believe that is one of the easiest tool sets we have out there. And then the third thing is um, there is a whole uh, sphere on, uh, uh, on the intellectual and, and sort of emotional and spiritual side of things that's a contributor here that we have yet to fully understand. We saw some great talks today on how complex uh, uh, the brain is and how the inter- interplay between the brain, immune system, and so on is ultimately programmable. Right, it is. I want to stay on, on, in you know, in touch and tuned into that because that's going to be a contributor as well. It's one of the reasons I started a neuroscience facility called Forty Years of Zen because I wanted neuroscientists to help me work on that because we've shown it was Candace Pert's work, the woman who discovered the first opiate receptor, that your immune system has its own memory. Absolutely. And that's got to be hackable. That's right. Right. Well, I I love those answers, Bob. Thank you, and thank you for your work with cellularity. Uh, you're you're pushing the boundaries of what we can do to regrow ourselves and become younger. And I'm grateful that there are people like you doing the work that's required, the deep science work, in order for us to all get access to stem cells and growth factors and things like that at an affordable level. So thank you, Dave. Thank you, and and as as one of as one of my heroes, uh, thanks for including me today. If you like today's episode, you know what to do. Go out there and get some stem cells. Okay. Maybe you can just put that on your bucket list because the cost is coming down. But if you are dealing with chronic pain, you're dealing with injuries that haven't healed, chronic conditions as you're aging or even when you're young, this is something that should be in your list of menu options. It's really worth doing. And while you're at it, uh, you certainly can go to Cellularity's website. That's C-E-L-L-U-L. Yeah, let me get that because, it's, uh, it's, by the way, Cellularity is intentionally misspelled as a spinoff of Cell Gene. Uh, it's one go. L. So it's C-E-L-U-L-A-R-I-T-Y.com. All right. So there's a bunch of stuff you can learn there. And while you're at it, if you haven't pre-ordered Game Changers, my new book, Check it out on Amazon or your favorite bookseller. Just search for Game Changers Asprey. And I have gone to the trouble of summarizing and and in a statistically valid way, looking at all the answers to that question that you just heard to figure out what hundreds of the world's top performers believe matters most so that when you have that extra energy that comes from turning on your mitochondria, you know what to do with it to get the most results in your life. It's game changers. Thank you. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.